Welcome to the Together for Good podcast, a podcast specifically designed to inspire, challenge, and uplift you during your daily walk of faith. Friends, we're continuing with our series as we look at the first chapters of the book of Genesis, the first chapters of the Bible itself. And as we make our way through today, we're looking at Genesis chapter 2, which is a really interesting, um, some new interesting nuances to the creation story, shall we say. But again, the whole point of this series is hopefully in the study of these first four chapters, it'll help you learn a little bit more about how God created the world, how God created you, and what that means to be human today. I love studying these old ancient stories because I still think that they have so much wisdom to provide us with about what God originally intended for our life here on earth. So without further ado, here we go with a Genesis chapter 2 Bible study. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. We're moving along in our study of the first chapters of the book of Genesis. As I said in last week's podcast episode, I think this is a really good practice for us uh, to just kind of look at uh, the beginning if you will, where, where we come from. What does the Bible say about the very start of creation? And what does that mean for how we understand who God's created us to be, how God has established the world, and how we are to relate to God? So we're moving along now into Genesis chapter 2. And Genesis chapter 2 is a really interesting one. This is about, gonna we're going to hear the creation of the first humans. And one of the ways to kind of think about this, I, I mentioned this briefly in our last episode, but wanted to draw it out now that I have a little better language for it. A lot of scholars believe that there were likely t- different communities that helped form the first chapters of Genesis, and, and frankly, just different parts of the Old Testament, if you will. There was a Yahwehist community and a priestly community. And so there's different points within the scripture when it seems like, you know, a different one of these communities is taking the reign. Um, the priestliest com- priestly community might better emphasize a lot of the laws and the rituals, right? They're priests, they're running the temple. Um, and then the Yahwehist community might emphasize some of the more theological points. You kind of get the idea. It's hard to necessarily delineate, but a lot of scholars, this is really common um, teaching uh, in seminary classes, etc. And so I wanted to tell you all of this because Genesis chapter 1, as we w- talked about last week, is this incredible poem. There's so much structure. There's so much repetition, repeated phrases, the number seven, the number three, the number 10 appearing in all sorts of strange ways throughout that writing. And now we move along to Genesis chapter two, which is also a story about creation in some ways, but it definitely takes a different angle and a different bent. And so one of the ways that we can kind of think about this and understand this is that chapter two seems to be giving us more details about the sixth day of creation. Chapter two doesn't say a whole lot about what God, you know, some of the other pieces of creation. It just kind of picks up and focuses on the humans uh, that God creates and their relationship and some of the the limits that God establishes for their life. Uh, We'll get into all of this, but I I wanted to start there just as we kind of frame this, because it is strange that Genesis 1 tells us all about creation, and then in Genesis 2, we get another account almost. But again, in my research, it seems like some scholars will believe, like maybe Genesis 1 was the Yahwehist community giving you their 
poetic interpretation of creation. And then Genesis chapter 2 is the priestly community filling in some of the details on the sixth day. So anyways, let's get down to it. Here we go. Um, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2, and we start at verse 4, because if you remember last week, the first creation account goes all the way up through the beginning of chapter 2. It's strange how they broke that out. But anyways, uh, let's read now from Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord made the earth and the heavens, and I'll read verse 5 too, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field was yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. Okay, pause there. There's actually a lot in those first two verses. This um, verse 4 in particular is a hinge verse, they call it, that looks backwards and forwards. This is, isn't exactly, as I said, a different creation story. It's looking at the events of day six, in the day that the Lord made the heavens and the earth when no plant was on the field yet. It seems to be looking at some of the later pieces of creation. The other piece that's really, really interesting, um, and again, this is part of how scholars believe that we're dealing with two different communities, right? Like that, that these stories sprang up out of different communities. In chapter one, Elohim is the word that is often used for God. Elohim Barah, we talked about that last week. And Elohim, right, this is the God that existed before all things. In chapter 2, the word we get is Yahweh Elohim, a name that stresses God's personal relationship with humanity and the world. And that really is the, the twist in the story that we're seeing here, as I've already mentioned, verse chapter one about the God who existed before all things and created all things. And now chapter two, this much more personal um, characteristic of God being described as we'll hear later and how God relates to humanity itself. Verse five that we also read about plants not growing because no one could till the ground. God, right, we're seeing the pieces here. God intends for humans to have responsibility and to take action in the process of creation. Everything is not supposed to just stay the way it was created. Creation is dynamic. It's fluid in a lot of ways. And we saw even glimpses of this in the first creation story, or in, the, in chapter one of Genesis, where God, you know, instructs the humans that are created to, to subdue the earth. Uh, and here we get a piece of that too, right? Like there's no one to take care of the ground and God had not yet caused it to rain upon the earth. Right? A lot of interesting pieces here and it's all setting up for, right? This is how creation is. This is how God created it. And, and God needs someone to be taking care of creation. Okay, let's move on to verse six, which kind of hinges on verse five as well. And so there was no rain, uh, there were no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Interesting. What a strange detail. Genesis chapter 2 tells us that it never rained, but rather water would rise up from a stream. Some scholars wonder or posit that the, it never actually rained in the world until Noah's flood. The story of Noah comes up for us in Genesis chapter 6, just a couple chapters later. 
And the way it's described in chapter two is that it doesn't rain. Water just kind of bubbles up from the ground in order for things to grow. It was just an interesting detail. I, I can't find a lot of um, spiritual significance to this point, but I like to point these things out just because the Bible's so fascinating. But yeah, um, maybe it never actually rained. It certainly never mentions it raining until Noah's big flood. So that, I don't know. There's just something interesting to think about there that how shocking that moment might have been for the people in Noah's day when they saw rain falling from the sky for the first time, and then it just kept going. <laughs> All right, let's move on to chapter or verse 7. Then the Lord formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. So the word here, the word for man here is a Hebrew word, Adam which we often think, oh, it's Adam. It's like, no, actually the name Adam won't appear until chapter four in Genesis. Even, you know, we never hear that the man is named Adam, um, like that capital A, the name that we know nowadays. This is the word Adam. And that, um, it's a word that means ground creature. Humans are made from the earth, it says. Adam is just this ground creature, someone formed from the earth itself. This is where we get those famous Ash Wednesday words, from dust you were made into dust you shall return. Uh, that real, you know, bookends of it, if you will. We were just like Adam formed from the dust of the earth. And of course, one day our bodies will deteriorate and become dust again. And what's really significant though, is that God takes this Adam, this ground creature, and God breathes into it. It's the breath of life that makes this ground creature something significant, something special, something sacred and holy. What's really fascinating, um, I love, I think the study of breath is something very uh, spiritual and really significant. Um, there's a great book uh, by James Nestor just called Breath that's about this incredible scientific study of the importance of breathing. I really recommend it. Um, it's not as, it's not a religious book at all. It's a science book, but I found it fascinating. But I also just have such curiosity about breath because it's so, uh, it, it's so significant for us as human beings, right? You're, you're always breathing. That is a mark and a sign of life. And, and yet, um, there's this real understanding, especially within the Jewish community, that the name Yahweh, right, the sacred name for God that our Jewish uh, siblings use. Actually, they, they don't use it. It's so sacred that you're not even supposed to say the word Yahweh in Jewish communities. Um, but the way that rabbis talk about it is that um, this name is actually the sound of human breathing. Yahweh. Yahweh. Um and so with every breath we take, even if we don't realize it, we're confessing the name of God, right? The name of God is always moving through us, even when we're not paying attention. And, and I just think that is such a gracious picture of God's relationship with us, you know, that God is sustaining us through every single day. Our breath is always going in and out, even when we're not paying attention. And frankly, too, for, for me personally, um, centering prayer, I've probably talked about this on the podcast before, centering prayer is my spiritual practice du jour at the moment. It's just been very, very meaningful for me. 
And centering prayer is just about sitting and being still and, and paying attention to your breath, frankly. And I find it deeply spiritual and, and something that really connects me with God. Just by being quiet and watching and noticing my breath. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just really gravitate towards this idea that our that our human breathing is something very, very sacred. And, and you know, Genesis chapter 2 gives us a picture of that, of that God takes a ground creature and puts the breath of life into it. And that's where this spark of humanity comes about, right? Like, And then just this idea, too, like God has uniquely infused into each of us this element of God, the spirit of God. I love too that we as Christians get to talk about the Holy Spirit, you know, of this like mighty rush of wind. That too just seems to be this incredible link to our breathing, um, that we are connected to the Holy Spirit through this process that is a, a key sign of life, of breathing. So lots I could say about that. I already did say lots about that, but I just, it's a really important point to me, something I really think is is valuable. I hope you found that interesting. Let, let's move along, though. Too much time on breath. Um, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The Hebrew verbs here uh, are trying to convey to us a God as a potter. That's kind of the way that the Hebrew verbs work out in this particular verse. God planting a garden, God having formed a man, it has this real potter imagery to it. And there's other places as well um, within the Psalms. Uh, I think in Proverbs, or no, it's not in Proverbs. I think it's in um, the prophet Micah, where God is described as a potter in some ways. And and there's something, again, That's a, I love it when we can get images like this to kind of attach to. It's always difficult to understand the nature and the character of God. Uh, God is this supreme divine being that is inherently beyond our comprehension. If you fully understand God, then that's not God. <laughs> and and so, but I do think having images like this or, or finding ways, looking in the text carefully for specific words that are trying to help us better understand God's character, I always think that that's important. And so what can we glean, right? This is a question for you to think about. What would it mean for you to, to see God as a potter? What are the characteristics uh, that you would then attach to God if you think that God is a potter in some way, right? As I think about it, it's like, wow, God is is really careful and, and really intentional um, and, and very gentle as well. Those are all uh, verbs that I would attach to God, you know, to a potter as well, just someone who's really careful with their craft. And, and you have to be so gentle as you form and work on the potter's wheel, um, and yet also, I mean, potters always just have like really dirty hands, right? And I think that th this idea too, that God is um, not like off in the distance, but very much digging God's hands into our creation and our lives and our existence, that God is very much there and present as well. I don't know, this is a fun thing to think about yeah, for you today too. What does it mean to say that God is a potter, that God has the characteristics of a potter? How can that better help you understand your relationship with God? Just a fun detail to look at. Let's move on though to verse 9. Out of the ground, the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, 
So these trees are going to be very important in chapter 3 in the story of the serpent. You know where that's all going. But let's talk about this just a little bit first. The knowledge of good and evil. This sounds like a good thing, right? And God's going to prohibit the humans from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I, I don't know about you, that always troubled me. It's like, wait, why wouldn't God want us to know what is good and what is evil? Why was that the tree that they were banned from eating from? That doesn't make any sense. Knowing good from evil seems like a really important uh, thing for us to lay hold of. But actually, in my research um, and in preparing for this podcast, I discovered this is a translation error. Uh, it's just the way that the Hebrew words translate into English. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is more about knowledge of the limits of good and evil. Humans, the, the general idea of God creating this tree, it, God doesn't want humans to be the ones to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. Only God should have the power to declare something good or declare something evil. God doesn't want us drawing lines in the sand to say those people are in and those people are out. God is the one that gets to declare this. And so that's why God doesn't want the humans eating from that tree is because they're taking on the role of God, right? This is supposed to be a power reserved just for the creator, just for God, the almighty. And yet the humans think that they should be the ones, right? They're tricked by the serpent into thinking like, no, I should get to do this. And isn't that the story of, I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to do chapter three next week, but isn't that so much of where the, the pain and the suffering and the struggles of this world come from is when there are people who think that they know what's best, that they should get to decide. The way that I've said it so many times here at Bethany, right? God is God and we are not. And that's very much what this tree of knowledge of good and evil is about. God should get to declare what is good and what is evil. When that is put in human hands, so often suffering and pain result. Okay, let's move along now to verse 10. A river flows out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides and becomes four branches. We're going to keep reading. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Haval, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and Oxenstone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. I'm terrible at pronouncing these. It is the one that flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Okay, so we get these names of the rivers. Interesting. And the names of all these rivers, Pishon, Haval, Gihon, and Cush, are not rivers that exist on a world map today. No one's really exactly sure where those four rivers are. Tigris and Euphrates, those are locations that we still know of today. Those are still rivers that you could find on a map. But this point suggests that there are locations outside of Eden. It is strange that we get four whole verses here describing rivers and areas where there's gold and oxen stone, areas outside of Eden. This is really important. We don't fully understand, you know, we often simplify these creation stories and we just think like, yep, there was Adam and there was Eve and they were in Eden and that was it. And that's how the whole world began. But it seems to suggest that as you read the text itself, 
that they want us to know there's other areas outside of Eden. But there was something else as well that maybe, you know, like God created, sure, formed this man from the dust of the ground, but maybe God also formed some other people elsewhere. We, we don't know, but the text does give us these pieces that suggest, hey, maybe there is something else outside of Eden. And this is really important. When we studied uh, Genesis chapter 4 in a couple of weeks here, um, Cain, spoiler alert, Cain is going to get banished from his family. So the family's already been kicked out of Eden. And then Cain's going to get kicked out of his family. But we're told in that chapter that Cain somehow goes off and finds himself a wife. And so that, that's always a strange detail, except that you see here in chapter two, they were already kind of planting the seeds. Like, yeah, there's other areas, there's other rivers, and maybe there were other people too. Who knows? We're not sure where else Cain could have found his wife. Um, so anyways, I, I don't want to speculate on any of this. It's hard to kind of piece it all together. Um, and frankly, these details aren't essentially important, right? The, the key point of always our creation stories is understanding the goodness of God, the graciousness of God, and seeing all of creation as something that God created. And we can get kind of caught up in the details if we want to and trying to figure it all out. Um, but I don't think that's ultimately why these stories were written down. They weren't written down to give us a perfectly clear explanation of exactly how everything was created in the order it was. More than anything, they're to help us understand that God is a generous and loving creator and that we are you know, created to have relationship with God and um, to care for one another. So anyways, um, the other pieces to mention too, just as we look at these strange things, is that it does seem that God has also blessed these other areas. Um, and that's often a key point throughout all of the Bible is that um, there always seems to be mention of the other areas and that God is still working there too. Certainly the New Testament is so much about expanding who the gospel message is for. And it wasn't just for Jerusalem, but on Pentecost Sunday, they went out to all the corners of the earth. And yet we even see that all the way at the beginning here is that, yeah, God had been, God established Eden, but God also put some really beautiful rivers and ox and gold in areas outside of Eden. Interesting. Um, okay. The, oh, final point that I just want to say on that too. That's also really important to mem- to understand is that God had created areas outside of Eden. And so when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden in chapter three, it's not as if they're banished from the presence of God. Y- yes, they're punished for their unfaithfulness, but they're sent out of Eden, but they're not sent into a godless area, right? God had already been creating and establishing rivers elsewhere, areas elsewhere. Okay. There's a lot to say on that point, but it is confusing. And I just felt like we needed to kind of dive into it. Let, let's keep going though. Uh, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to till it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you may eat freely of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Whoa, (laughs) dramatic, Uh, dramatic music, dun, dun, dun. The mention of eating here and the mention of dying are metaphorical, okay? Eating has real metaphorical significance. Eating means taking into oneself something that affects your entire being. You are what you eat, we always say. And that is part of what God is communicating. If you take into yourself, man, 
um, ground creature who I've breathed life into, if you take into your being the knowledge of good and evil, if, if you start to believe that you are the arbiter of good and evil, that you get to establish what is good and what is evil, then you shall die. It's what I was saying earlier when we first brought up the tree. We know that by eating the fruit, right? You know how Genesis 3 is going to go. Adam and Eve are going to eat the fruit and they don't physically die, but they do experience a metaphorical death. They become cut off from God. They become, you know, they start to have a a sense of shame about themselves. We're going to talk about a lot of that um, in chapter three next week. But again, it's this, if you take into your being this idea that you are the one who declares something good or something evil, then you will not be living in a way that is full and joyful and in line with God's hope and purpose for the world. Wow, that's so significant. That's so wise. Um, I wonder if we can get some of our world leaders to read Genesis 2 and really uh, take this lesson to heart, right? It's it's just such a such a poignant, beautiful way of understanding all of this. Um, and it's so tragic that, yeah, we continue to live in a world where people think they are the arbiters of good and evil. And yeah, it is causing a lot of metaphorical death and real death because of that. Okay, moving on to verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. This is the very first time in the whole Bible that God has declared something not good. And what God has declared not good is isolation and loneliness. Story checks out um, that God created us for relationship with one another, right? Again, the first time God says something that's not good is someone living alone, someone not being in community with another person, not having a partner. And so this is showing again, though, for us that creation is an ongoing process. God recognizes that something's not quite right. And so God continues to create. Um, And that's powerful for us to understand is that God never created the world to be static. God, you know, there's an evolution to all of this. There's a dynamic nature to creation that God intended. Yeah, that God can say, wow, this isn't good. Let's improve upon it. That's going to be the story of the entire New Testament. Is Jesus kind of coming and saying like, yeah, like you've heard it said this, but truly I say to you that. Um, Just in trying to encourage the people to more fully understand God's hope for the world. Um, the other point that we just need to make here, uh, oftentimes these passages can be used in really um, patriarchal and misogynistic ways. Um, and that doesn't jive with what's actually the, the way that the words are originally intended. Um, this word helper is not meant to denote a secondary or less than status. In fact, in Psalm 121, God is referred to as a helper. It's just another... Um, it, it's not a, a, yeah, it's not a secondary term, even though we often think of it as such, and it's been used as such. I'm going to hit this point a little bit more in the future verses. So let's keep going. Verse 19 and 20. So out of the ground, the Lord formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. And for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. Okay, so God, in this sense, trying to find a helper for the man, 
turns over the creative process to the human. Hey, ground creature that I breathed life into, you can be the one that names the animals. But what a beautiful picture. Creation is a partnership with God. Humans are meant to create and expand and use our intellect and abilities to better this world. That's what the first man did, right? He, The first guy named all the creatures. And God's like, okay, cool. Yeah, you, you, you want to call that an aardvark? All right. I'll write it down. That's two A's. Weird. But all right, you said so. But the, I, I love that. When we should think, I just think... Creativity is such a gift, and human creativity and ingenuity is amazing what we've been able to accomplish to this point in history. And we need to affirm that and realize that God affirms that too and celebrate that. If you are a creative individual designing who who knows what to better our world, yeah, that is spiritual work that needs to be affirmed, right? If you're a teacher coming up with lesson plans that can help better educate our kids, that is creative spiritual work. You are in partnership with the creative God who set creation into motion way back in the beginning. Just to use that as an example. Um, yeah, I think we, we do well uh, as a church to better lean into this and to just celebrate creativity, musical creativity. Um, I, I don't know, scientific creativity. All of it is pleasing to God, I believe. Um, and that God wants us to use that part of our intellect and abilities to better this world. Okay, but let's see what happens next. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And then he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Okay, so they couldn't find a helper. And so God puts the man to sleep. And this is important. That detail is very significant. It's indicating that what's about to happen next is God's action. It is not human action. The man was asleep. He had nothing to do with this. God is the one who is creating this new being. And it's really interesting. The, again, the woman is not somehow less because it came out of the man. That's not the point. The man had nothing to do with this. The point is that God did the creating in the same way that God originally created man. And not only that, but that these two are, are, are intimately linked, that they are um, separate and yet equal, that they are two and yet one, right? That they're, that humanity, whether you're male or female, is what this is describing, man or woman, that you are still created by God and meant to be connected with one another. Yeah. Okay. 22 and 23. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and put her and brought her to the man. And then the man said, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman for out of man, this one was taken. The human man sees what God has done and declares it good. The phrase bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh is an idiom that is meant to emphasize mutuality and equality. This is not any sort of submissive or, or dominant relationship. That's not at all how this was meant to be, even though the man's the one that names uh, her woman. Like the point is the mutuality and the equality that God created them both in the same way that the man was asleep when the creation happened because it's about what God does, not what the man does. There's a lot that has been used incorrectly in this passage over the years, and I'm really trying to emphasize uh, the, the change to all of this. 
We have um, just a couple verses to go, so let's finish this up. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, this is also the um, a very important verse that we'll need to come back to next week. Shame is not a part of God's plan. Shame was not a part of the original creation process. It's not until the humans start to think that they should be the arbiters of good and evil that shame comes into the world. I've already said too much. We're going to talk about that a lot next week. But there you go. That's the second creation uh, story. And, and like, as I said, it's more of like a, an amplification of maybe what happened on the, the that sixth day there. And there's some really you know beautiful pieces to all this that we've gotten to spend some time with. I, I think more than anything, this chapter is about how God created humans And there are a few key points about what it means to be a human woven into this story, as we kind of covered. The world was created by God, not just by one group of people or one section of the world. Everything has the fingerprints of God, even areas outside of Eden. And not only that, we were created to trust this God, right? To to allow God to be the one that decides what's good and what's evil. But not only that, we were created to be creative ourselves, You know, this world was not meant to be fixed and static. God created and then invites us to create further, to expand and change and evolve this world um, in ways that are good and pleasing. So there you go. I hope that was interesting for you. Another, you know, really deep dive into a story of scripture. But again, looking at the origin. Yeah, that's what I should have called this series. This is our origin story. We love that in comic books. So yeah, the, the biblical origin story, if you will. Hope it gives you some things to think about this week um, to keep you uh, connected and growing in your faith. Wherever you're listening from, thank you so much for taking time to listen to our podcast. Share it with some family and friends, especially as you're visiting and traveling this summer. But above all else, friends, stay in peace.